Welcome to Talking Tax, a Bloomberg Tax podcast. In this series, we're talking all about tax reform, the proposed changes that you should be aware of, the implications for both practitioners and taxpayers, and how we expect the process to play out going forward. I'm your host, Allison Versprill, a reporter at Bloomberg Tax. Today, I'm joined by John Gimigliano, the principal in charge of the Federal Legislative and Regulatory Services Group in the Washington National Tax Practice at KPMG LLP. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you, Allison. Happy to be here. So I wanted to dive right in. Let's talk about late Friday, early Saturday morning. I was there on the Hill, and there was a lot of activity around these last-minute tweaks to the bill, um, talk of triggers and changes to the provisions related to pass-throughs. I was wondering, were there any modifications to the Senate bill that surprised practitioners? Yeah, well, there were surprises, and this isn't exactly what you asked, but I think the biggest surprise uh, for many practitioners is, frankly, the speed at which this all has happened. I know this wasn't easy, and no tax reform bill is ever going to be easy, especially a reconciliation one. But I think that, uh, that the speed with which this happened really exceeded anybody's expectations. You know, just to put it in context, the Tax Reform Act of 1986, to do what we've done in basically the month of November, took about a year, maybe more than a year in 1986. And so the fact that all this moved through so quickly has caught, I think, a lot of people off guard who just frankly aren't used to seeing Congress move at this speed, at least not in recent years. So it wasn't exactly what you asked, but I think if you had asked people what's their biggest surprise, that's probably it. Now, of secondary um, importance, uh, as you alluded to, yes, there were surprises in the bill itself as it came out of the Senate uh, early Saturday morning. Probably no bigger surprise than the restoration of the alternative minimum tax, both corporate and individual, back into the bill. That was a real surprise because, in many ways, it undermined so much of what the Republicans have been talking about on tax reform over the last year. So that came as probably the biggest surprise for most people and the one that I've heard uh, the most from you know when I talk to uh, my clients. So we're talking about the alternative minimum tax and some of these other changes. Um, can you discuss the key differences that still exist between the House and Senate version of the bill? I know that the AMT is one, but what are some of the other main areas where these plans diverge? Yeah, well, look, there are obviously hundreds and hundreds of differences out there, some large, some small, you know, some which will be difficult to reconcile, some of which are just, uh, you know, um, really just details. But I would say the biggest ones are, at least on the business side, You've got, uh, while they both have a 20% corporate rate, both the House and the Senate do, it's important that they have different effective dates. So the House would turn on the 20% effective rate almost right away on January 1st, 2018, whereas the Senate would wait a year, um, make it effective 1-1-19. And, and that's important for the Senate in a lot of ways because it, frankly, saves them a lot of money uh, by delaying the effective date of the corporate rate, and that makes the numbers of the Senate bill work. Uh, there are big differences as as to how they would tax uh, pass-through entities, a completely different regime. You've got the maximum 25% rate in the House bill, and you've got this deduction, 23% deduction rule in the Senate. And they're both trying to do the same thing, but the mechanics of them, and frankly, the, the way they work and affect taxpayers is, is very different. You've got other important differences. You've got uh, the expensing rule is different in the House and the Senate. I know they look alike. But there's really one important difference to me in that the House allows you to write off the cost of buying used property, whereas the Senate doesn't. It only allows you to write off the cost of buying new property. And that's a big deal, especially as you think about how it applies in um, M&A markets, that 
you're going to go acquire the assets of a company, uh, if you're an acquirer, that really changes the economics of that transaction. That's an important one. Um, and then there are differences in the interest limitation rule. That's one that a lot of taxpayers care about in terms of how they're calculated, the Senate rule being more strict. And then one other important difference, I think, on the business side is uh, tax credits. You know, the House would repeal most of them. The Senate would retain most of them. And that's something that uh, is a pretty significant tax uh, difference in, in, in the different tax regimes of the two bills. And then they've got differences on the international side as well. So there are quite a few on, on the business side. Um, and then just come back to the AMT, yeah, they are, on the individual side, the, the restoration of the individual AMT into the Senate bill is a big, big deal uh, and a big difference between the two bills that it's going to have to get uh, reconciled some way. So you're talking about reconciling these differences. Uh, the House voted to go to conference committee with these bills, and they also appointed their conferees. So can you discuss perhaps when we're talking about these differences, what are the potential sticking points? that you could see a rise in conference committee? And how do we go about resolving those issues? Yeah, well, let's talk about the sticking points and we can figure out how to resolve them. Um, you know, uh, let's, let's maybe start with individuals. You know, the thing that jumps out at you, I think, off the page is that they've got different rate structures uh, between the House and the Senate. And the House has four rates with a top rate of 39.6%, and the Senate, I think, has seven with a top rate of 38.5. But not only that difference, but there are differences in where the brackets, uh, you know, bracket points come in and go out. And so that's an important difference, too. And it's not only just a mathematical thing, as it appears, but it's also important um, in, as a sticking point between the House and the Senate as it relates to the distributional effects of the individual tax. In other words, who pays more, who pays less? And when, uh, those are all important things that they're going to have to iron out between the House and the Senate. As I said before, this AMT thing is a, is a big deal. And the reason it's a big sticking point, I think, is because so much of what Republicans, especially on the House side and to a lesser extent, but still significant extent, the administration has talked about as one of the promises of tax reform is simplifying the tax code for individuals. And we've seen, you know, Paul Ryan, Kevin Brady, even President Trump wave around the postcard. And that's been a big talking point and one of the, you know, the, the real selling points of, of individual reform is simplifying the code for individuals, their ability to do their own tax return, 90 to 95% of them, depending on who you believe. By restoring the individual AMT on the, in the Senate, it really undercuts the ability uh, to make the postcard thing real to the extent it was possible to begin with. And so that's a really big deal that either the House is going to have to decide, you know, okay, fine, we'll take the individual AMT and give up on the ability of the postcard, or um, they're going to have to put their foot down on this, which means finding additional revenue to reconcile um, with with the uh, the Senate. Similar issues exist with the corporate AMT. Bringing the corporate AMT back in that the Senate did undercuts, again, a lot of the proposals that they've been making, largely because it undoes some of the tax credits that are otherwise available. It complicates significantly, I think, the international tax regime, the way the proposals are on the minimum tax and other things would work. And frankly, you know, in, in, by having a corporate AMT rate of 20%, which is equal to the regular rate, it just doesn't really work. Uh, it's, I don't know that that was fully anticipated by by the Senate when they did that or hadn't fully thought it through. But I think now with the light of day, um, they recognize or there's a recognition that something's going to have to be fixed uh, in conference as well. And I expect to see something along those lines. And I know we're hearing on the Hill that there have been some meetings this week and they'll probably continue through the week. 
to discuss some of these changes, in particular with the AMT, since there's been some backlash in that area. So we'll have to see how this evolves over the next few days. Uh, So I wanted to shift gears a bit um, and talk about, so when it comes to the differences in these two bills, and you've touched on this a bit already, you know, how do these differences affect taxpayers and businesses? How does this AMT provision impact businesses? And then when we're talking about differences, does it make it difficult for taxpayers and businesses to plan going forward when we don't have these final details yet? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that there's ever been a harder time to be ahead of tax uh, at a large company trying to plan for the future. Because you think about you've got a House bill to think about and a Senate bill to think about. And look, they're substantially similar. I'm not going to pretend that they're completely different, but there are important differences that we've outlined. And so first you're trying to figure out House versus Senate. Then you also have to maintain the possibility that it's still possible we'll get nothing. Uh, it wouldn't be impossible that that they, they couldn't reconcile the House and the Senate bill and we'll maybe wait till next year. And that complicates things. And then that's just in the U.S. Uh, you know, I'm sure People are aware that outside the U.S., we're going through a really fluid time in terms of uh, taxation of multinational income between the OECD-based erosion and profit-shifting project. You've got um, state aid cases. So it's a really, really complex time to to plan for the future. And uh, I'm sure one of the things that will make tax directors and heads of tax feel better, at least, is if we can get the U.S., system resolved, whether we adopt the House bill, the Senate bill, or a version of the two. But it really is hard to plan for the future when you don't know what those rules are going to be as soon as maybe January 1. That's not that far away. Well, I think that's a great place to stop, you know, to give our listeners some forward-looking thoughts to consider. And I want to thank you again, John, for joining us. Thanks, Allison. Join us next time as we continue to talk with tax professionals about the implications of what could be the biggest change to our tax code since 1986. Again, I'm your host, Allison Versprill. This has been Talking Tax.